Hello, and welcome to the Three Links Oddcast, your podcast for all things having to do with Odd Fellowship. And now, here are your hosts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Three Links Oddcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Dominiak. I'm another of your hosts, Toby Hansen. I'm your third host, Ainsley Heilick, and we are brought to you tonight by our new sponsor, Heart and Hand Institute. That's right. If you like reading and if you like Odd Fellows, you can combine both of those together by going on over to the heartandhandinstitute.com to check out the offerings available. Currently, we have the Odd Fellows Primer and the new District Deputy Grand Master's Guide available. Go check them out. Wow, that DDGM guide sounds like a great book. Uh, I suppose that's probably only for district deputy grandmasters, right? It's not like just any random person could buy it and learn from it. It's a very exclusive screening process through this very exclusive site called Amazon. <laughs> All right, so what, what you're actually saying is please go buy several hundred copies and distribute them around your jurisdiction. Correct. Not just for district deputies. It's for anybody who wants to learn more about any sort of leadership workings to help improve your odd fellowship journey. Fantastic. Thank you so much for telling us about that, brother. The Heart in Hand Institute, your home for quality educational materials about odd fellowship. Well, we've got quite a wonderful episode lined up here. Uh, the queue is full of excellent guests. We've got Pete Davis and Rebecca Davis, two wonderful filmmakers here who did a beautiful film called Join or Die. Oh, no, Join or Die. That sounds dramatic. We like those dramatic titles here at the Three Links Oddcast. And you certainly did an excellent job of titling your movie. Thanks so much, and thanks for having us on. We're glad to be here. Yes, and we also have a member from one of our superstar lodges. You know them, you love them. If you're anywhere on Facebook, uh, you have seen the brothers of this fantastic lodge down in Texas. Brother Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Tom Wright, uh, Secretary of uh, Waxahachie Lodge Number 80, uh, trustee for our building, uh, past grand, and uh Loyal Oddfellow. Thank you very much, brother. Welcome. So to start with, to be here. let's talk about this movie. Um, Pete, I'm going to ask you, um, what's it about? Well, it is a movie about why you should join a club and also why the fate of America depends on it. Um, so that's kind of our tagline for the movie. You know, it's a story of um, a, in some ways, a part of it is a story of a expert on community, Robert Putnam, who has been a professor studying both the importance of community to our democracy. You know, he, he spent many decades kind of fleshing out theories of why when we get together with our neighbors in ordinary ways, um, it actually is a bulwark for making all of our society work. And then he's also he became famous for writing a book called Bowling Alone, which is an account of the decline of community engagement and the threat to our democracy from that over the last 50 years, kind of finding really fascinating data on how, you know, we would spend twice as much time 50 years ago as Americans 
um, in club meetings, twice as many of us were club leaders, twice as many of, you know, we belong to twice as many clubs uh, and all different types of ways of interacting um, over the last 50 years. So he kind of pointed his attention to this really important thing, community, and the crisis that we face when communities in decline. And then the end of the movie is hope about how we can turn this around and an important call of, you know, if you really care about, you know, saving our country and saving yourself, um, the one of the most significant acts you can take is joining up with your neighbors in an organization like the Oddfellas. And um, so we're so excited to have featured uh, Lodge Number 80 in the film as one example of the types of uh, ways you can get connected. So um, you mentioned that it is based on the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And so can you explain? I, I, I got to see it where kind of the genesis was in the film. But can you explain to the listeners uh, how it goes from this book that was written several decades ago that seemed to make a big splash then and then how, you know, here we are several decades later. How do you pick this up? as a story thread and then run with it to create a documentary film. Yeah, so um, Pete and I are actually a, a brother-sister uh, team who worked on this film. Pete was actually a student of Robert Putnam's. I was um, working in the, the news business. I was working at NBC News out of New York doing national news stories. And I was covering a lot of the symptoms on the ground, um, you know, hard stories that we all see in the news every day, you know, neighbors struggling with, um, addiction issues, suicide, school shootings, you know, which were um, representative of, you know, the loneliness and isolation crisis um, in, in the U.S., stories like this. And, you know, I was looking for an opportunity to zoom out, to not keep covering the crisis on the ground, but give more of a framework to think about, um, you know, what is what is going on here? And then also some hope. Um, and so uh, Pete and I teamed up. We approached Robert Putnam in 2017. Uh, so well before even the, the you know, COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, sent a lot of us into, you know, deeper isolation um, for those few years. Um, and we started filming with him and the film premiered uh, this year at South by Southwest back in Texas. So it was fun to be back in uh, the state of Texas. Um, and uh, in addition to, to Bob's work, you know, we were lucky enough to get to meet up with um, people actually doing the hard work on, on the ground outside of, you know, Bob, who's away crunching all these numbers. Um, you know, and that's when I was able to connect with um, Tommy and the other folks at the, the lodge to feature them. And they were they were one of six groups that we featured in the film um, doing community building work, um, trying to buck these trends. And it's, it's kind of a funny story of how the book and movie came out at different times. You know, when Bob's book came out, it resonated with a lot of people, but a lot of people kind of in, on the national level said, Bob, what are you talking about? You're saying there's this decline in community, but and you're saying it's a threat to America. You're like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling. There's nothing wrong with America. You're just being hunky-dory, thinking about the past. And so that's what people were feeling about Bowling Alone in 1995 when the article came out and the book came out in 2000. Now, 20 years later, everyone feels something's off. Everyone feels like there's an isolation crisis. Everyone feels like, oh gosh, something you know has been in decline with community. And so it's interesting to have this time where we revisit a book that almost came out too early um, for a movie that now when we screen this movie, no one ever stands up and says, 
no, you're wrong. We're all very communal yeah. right now and everything's going perfectly. Um, everyone kind of says, oh my gosh, thank you for putting that on screen because it, it shows something that we all have been feeling. Um, and so sometimes you got to return to things that might've come out at the wrong time. So Tom, yeah, how is it that they decided you get a phone call or something that says, hey, we want to feature your lodge in a movie or or what happened that your lodge suddenly got mixed up with film producers? Uh, one of our lodge brothers, Harley Wrangle, was contacted by Rebecca on Instagram. And Harley contacted me and said, is this something that we want to do? And I, I said, yeah, we need to roll out the red carpet. And we did, We I got in touch with Rebecca and, and the timing was pretty right. We were having our annual Thanksgiving dinner where we we have as many as 200 sometimes to show up to eat Thanksgiving dinner with us. And so I, I invited Rebecca to come up and she got there in the middle of the day and showed her around the lodge hall, kind of gave her a little of the history of our building, our, our lodge itself, um, showed her a little bit about around. We, we're right on the town square. Uh, we're the county seat of our county and we've got a really nice historical courthouse there and I just kind of showed her around a little and they filmed a lot of the goings on that day and the rest is history. Uh, we had a great time. We, we enjoyed hosting her and uh, her camera crew was awesome. We just, okay. but it was, uh, I have to give the credit to uh, Rebecca and Harley Wrangle. They originally were the two that, that connected on, uh, on Instagram. So what was it about what you saw on Instagram that made you want to pick this lodge, Rebecca? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we were trying to bring through in the film is that, um, you know, and I spent a lot of time also researching in the Library of Congress archives. And uh, when I went to take the tour of, of the Lodge with Tommy, you know, the Lodge also has an incredible amount of archives, um, you know, right right on its walls. Um, you know, I, I we wanted to not just express that there was a time that we used to get together more. We wanted to express that there was a time that, um, civic and community life and and the ritual of it, you know, permeated kind of all aspects of, of the clubs, you know, from from the dress, as you all know, well, to the symbolism, um, to the parades and, you know, all that was coming through in, in the social media, the lodge. And the last thing I'll say, there were also some young faces um, in the photos. And I think. You know, we wanted to show some newer clubs that had just started more recently in the film, but we also wanted to show some, you know, legacy clubs that have had, you know, over century long histories in the U.S., like the Odd Fellows, um, but ones where, um, you know, as Wax 80, you know, uh, exemplifies, you know, is is bringing in younger membership, which I know is a, a challenge for all the clubs, you know, the Rotary, the Lions, um, you know, to that have been around for a long time to to bring in new members. Yeah, I I think that is a wonderful testament to the value and the usefulness of social media for lodges. Nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody knows what happens inside that dingy building on the edge of downtown unless you actually tell people. And that's one of the messages that we keep stressing here on the podcast, which is, you are all going to the meeting, okay? As a member, you go in and you know what's happening in there and you know how cool it is and how much fun you have. No one else knows that. It is not self-evident 
people who walk by on the street do not see the faded painting on the side of the building that says every Tuesday, 8 p.m., and know that means that they should show up and grab an application. You have to tell them, and that's a pretty consistent marketing message. You know, myself, as a musician who is performing regularly, um, I have to keep marketing constantly so people know I'm available to play gigs. And unless I keep that up, people stop calling me. It is the same for any kind of fraternal order. You have to keep reminding your community that you exist. I run into this all the time. Ainsley, you and I were just at Sovereign Grand Lodge, and we run up against people who know nothing about promotion, and they say, well, we did a TV commercial about Odd Fellowship in 1986, and nobody joined, and if it was so good to promote, it would have worked, and we would have had 250,000 new members since then. Well, no, that's not the way marketing works. It's not at all. There's been one commercial in the history of mankind that's had that much impact, uh, and that was for Apple computers. Other than that, there's nothing that actually works that well. And I want to build off the um, the communications um, aspect that this is one of those opportunities that the Lodge seized upon, and instead of just saying, no, we're not going to do this, this is not, you know, and, and could have missed out on this opportunity to get the name out there and to be so prominently featured in the opening and closing bookends of the movie that um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that they were able, uh, open-minded and able to take it on because had Rebecca contacted a different lodge, it would have been a very different result. And it would have been a lost lost chance. But now we have this beautiful tie-in that is, um, before we started recording, um, I was saying that it was, it's almost like a, like a love letter to Odd Fellowship, the way it was presented with the, with us kind of being the bookends of the whole production. And it's, um, it, it, it's so validating when I was watching it, it was so validating because the message of, um, of Robert Putnam and the message of the film and the just social capital in general, it, it just in general, it's that if we work together, we could accomplish more. And that is the secret for moving forward in these difficult times is to come back together and learn how to work as a unit again, because we don't know how to people together anymore. And I feel like, you know, everybody in the room here kind of understands that we get that, but it's trying to get the outside world. That's so jaded to get that. And how do you explain that? And I really hope that that message reaches people that are, I love that it kept showing I'm not a joiner on the screen and kept mentioning that because I hear that so often when I'm trying to tell people about, you know, how great it is to be part of something and, oh, well, I'm not a joiner. I'm not, oh, I don't do clubs. I don't do groups. I don't do that. And, and that's something that I, I hear a lot and for people have valid reasons for not wanting to be involved. Maybe they had bad experiences in the past, but I think a lot of people are just pre jaded to it because of their own preconceived notions. And I think the, the one group, that was interviewed in um, the bowling, the bowling group really nailed it on the head 
um, how coming together and meeting people that you wouldn't otherwise know has really challenged them to become a lot more open-minded and accepting and to just get along better. You know, something that goes along with that is it used to be that uh, groups like ours, the Odd Fellows, people would come together and you were coming together generally, with a few exceptions, but generally with uh, a lot of different people from yourself in your community. So either your town or your neighborhood in a city. And so all of the different people in the neighborhood would get together in a group like the Odd Fellows. And so not only did you get to learn to work with different people, um, it became a normal part of life to be together with people who are different than you, who are a lot, you know, come from a different background, have a different income, you know, maybe speak a different language at home. And so that, that level of difference became something that people were very used to dealing with. Now it seems like, especially, and this gets sort of reflected and amplified in social media, you can only legitimately get together with people who share a similar set of core beliefs as you. It's like you can't have any sense of community with someone who believes something that's politically or socially too different from you. And that's something that I see happening a lot. People are like, you know, on Facebook sometimes you'll see it happen where somebody says, if you don't believe in these ideas, unfriend me right now because I'm not going to be your friend. The, that kind of resistance to listening to what other people have to say about things, I mean, that was like unthinkable 20 or more years ago, but now it's become a litmus test for friendship. It's like you have to follow these principles or believe in these things. There's no grace for appreciating people aside from a list of political beliefs they might hold. And there's no sort of latitude for allowing people to have any kind of different beliefs. Now, uh, Pete and Rebecca, um, as you were making this film, how did you see that kind of attitude reflected um, in your research and your development of the film? Totally. You know, I, I love that point. It, it's a, a totally surprising point, which is that you'd think that in the early days of the Internet, people thought, oh, before the Internet, we're all stuck in our towns. Everyone in our town is similar to us. And then we're going to get on the Internet. We're going to meet all these people halfway across the world. We're going to be exposed to all these different ideas. It's going to be this beautiful story of us bridging across all these divides. And what's actually happened is the internet allows us to only interact with people in the sub, 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 subculture that perfectly fits who we are. And actually getting out with our neighbors, it might not get you the broadest set of people, but it's gonna get you a much broader set of people than joining the specific subreddit for your very particular interest group or your very particular ideology. And actually joining a club uh, ironically, um, in your local area, it might be the best way to find meet different people, people who are different than you. Um, and one of the, you know, we wanted to um, specifically, what we featured six clubs at the end of the movie, um, and we really wanted to focus on clubs that were 
bridging divides and specifically around political divides. You know, we did not want, even though politics is part of civic life and Mm -hmm. political clubs are part, you got to fight for what you believe in, but you also have to bridge across divides. And um, that's what all the other parts of civic life are supposed to do. And we really were excited by, you know, the fact that, you know, the bowling alley that we followed, they said there's places where a lumberjack and a surgeon are on the same bowling team, you know, from totally different walks of life and getting to know each other because, you know, the teams are randomized um, for half of the season. And we really loved, and I'd love to hear Ta- Tommy kind of speak to this. We we couldn't put all of his wonderful interview in the movie, but would be great to hear some more on this is, you know, what's great about Waxa 80 is, is um, there are, you know, there are people all across the political spectrum. There are people all across the, the type of profession. Um, and I, I'd be interested to hear as a leader in that club, um, you know, how do you navigate that tension um, and how do you bridge those divides? Um, because you, you, your group seems to be doing such a wonderful job at it. It's really kind of, I don't know if it's lightning in a bottle or what, but yeah, there, there are people that I, I cherish my time with at Lodge that I otherwise would not know. I mean, they're not people that are in the group that I run and hang with. You know, these are people that I probably would have gone the rest of my life and never known had they not been brought in by someone else. And we do have a, uh, we do have a pretty a pretty broad stru- uh, spectrum politically. Uh, we just kind of have an agreement that we just, you know, we have lively conversations in the dining hall or in the game room before meetings or whatever but once we shut that door to the lodge room it all comes back to the ritual and and odd fellowship and we're we're able to you know we get our some of us get our feelings hurt every once in a while if we lose an argument in the dining hall but it's not a end it's not the end of the world you know and i think uh you know since we've kind of put the political views in into 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 the discussion we're never going to get anywhere politically if we can't talk to people that we disagree with. That's what it's all about. And we it's it's like one side or the other. People have gotten so polarized that they're not even willing to sit and, and, sit and talk to one another. And, you know, the uh, the only the best thing about politics has always been compromise. And we don't see that anymore. And, you know, I. I think it's uh, it's important to us that we sometimes we have to compromise those things within our organization. Um, as much as I enjoyed watching Odd Fellowship in the film, I enjoyed the bowling. I think more than I did the Odd Fellowship. I've been a league bowler most of my adult life, and so I got I got a double dose of what I've been living most of my adult life, and that was a pretty nice thing to see. Uh, my bowling family. They're just as important to me as my lodge family or any or my tattoo, my, my tattoo community family there. I mean, that's a I was late to the party getting tattooed. I didn't get my first tattoo. I was 31 years old and now I work for a tattooer. I, we have three or four or five tattooers in our lodge. And, you know, I've, I've grown to love these guys. I work conventions for Oliver every year and I meet people from all around the world and I've got a huge tattoo family now. So it's this, it's these kinds of communities that have kept me ticking, you know, my whole adult life. And I think that, you know, as far as what we do at 80, people come and ask us all the time, man, how do y'all do what you do? And we, we don't really have a formula. We just, 
we try to show up. We try to keep uh, we try to keep everything fun. We've got a couple of pool tables. We've got a foosball table. We've got a shuffleboard table. We've got a ping pong table. And we kind of divide up into our little groups and go play our little whatever it is that we want to do. Some of us just sit and chat in the dining room. Uh, I usually go to the secretary's desk a little early and try to get some of my stuff done before lodge starts. But we try to have a very decorous and professional meetings. We don't want our meetings to start getting raggedy. And if they do, then then we we put people in check in our meetings when they don't when they're not doing things the way that we were taught they were supposed to be done. You know, we we call them out and it's the only way that we learn. So we try to keep it professional in the meeting room and and the rest of the time we try to have a good time. You know, we try to do every parade that comes around. Uh, we've got Oddfest coming up uh, the first Saturday in October, which is a big fundraiser for us. And and it's a it, it's growing every year. We're about to outgrow our space that we've been in all these years. And, you know, we're just we've we've been able to grow that. And, you know, we we just we've got a, a good lane that we're in in the community right now. And, um, you know, I don't I don't know what the formula is. We just we try to get along and we try to keep meetings as as you know, as professional and stay as decorous as we can during meetings. And and uh, I guess that the fun is what keeps people coming back, though. That and we feed everybody every Monday. You know, we've we've had a bunch of great odd fellows that have been there for years that started coming. The original reason they came was because they could get a free home-cooked meal on a Monday night. And I can think of half a dozen people. That was their reason for coming the first time. And they're still around. They've been around a long time. I think that brings up a point that was mentioned about two thirds of the way through the film. That is that having a group based on identity is not necessarily going to be successful, that you have to have a purpose. It doesn't really matter mm -hmm. what the group of people is, but as long as you can define what your purpose is, then your meeting's going to be successful. I remember them being very clear on that. And then he talked about the uh, the bike group, the red and green, and how they would define exactly what it is that they're trying to accomplish before they set out each time on a ride. And I think in the Odd Fellows, we generally have a purpose that we explain, and maybe for some people it's having dinner um, or whatever it is. But then also I think it is difficult to make that pitch. What is your purpose when you have so many broad purposes as the odd fellows do. So getting back to that behind the scenes in the footage, you know, with your knowledge of, of the research, how do you define the purpose? How do you get that elevator pitch to grab someone off the street? One thing I'll add to it too, which I think was another thing that drew me to Waxa 80 when I came across their Instagram account was purpose is really important. And I also think place um, you know, is, is another thing. And, and the lodge, you know, was clearly coming through in the photos that this was a special place that had a lot of love in it. Um, you know, this is the wax 80 building for anyone who's listening. That's seen photos of it. You know, it is, you know, exceptionally pretty probably on, on the list of odd fellows lodges. Although I know there's probably a lot of competition with, you know, beautiful buildings around the country, but 
you know, I, I don't think it needs to necessarily, um, you know, be the fanciest building, but if it's a building that a lot of people are investing a lot of love into a place, um, that can do, do a lot also. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, speaking to the purpose, I think this, you know, idea of moral formation, um, that I know you all know, know so well, um, in, in the work that Odd Fellowship tries to do. And, um, you know, I, I think in a time when, you know, religion numbers are down. Um, there's a real, a real moment where I think people are are seeking that, and I think it's a, a matter of getting that message out there um, for our, our organizations in this country that are offering some type of moral formation. Um, you know, that doors are open. Now, here's a question. Um, one thing I have noticed is. Not only is there kind of a general distrust of organizations across the board, which I think is kind of related to this sense of people not being joiners, um, it has actually become politically very expedient to set yourself as someone who is an outsider who is against any kind of organization. Now, that's not a new thing, but it has certainly taken on uh, sort of a, a new look in recent years as it's become very easy to say this particular organization is corrupt uh, just because it's so big and it's so bad. Um, and I am I am from outside of that organization, so I can be trusted as a, a legitimate actor. I, I think about uh, 50 years ago, when the world's largest corporation and America's largest employer was General Motors and people would be proud to drive a Chevrolet and they would be proud to be working on the assembly line in Dayton, Ohio or Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And now it's like anything that is large, established, uh, anything like that becomes immediately suspicious. Um, so when you were putting this film together and doing the research and talking to people, um, what did you find related to that sense that any sort of organization is immediately suspicious? Yeah, you know, that is a huge part of why we made the film. In a way, one thing we, we talked about a lot as we were making the film took us five years to make it. So we had a lot of conversations about like, what are we what are we doing here? Um, and one of it is that this film is a countercultural film. The dominant culture right now is what we sometimes call hyper-individualistic. And I like saying hyper-individualistic because individualism is good. Um, you know, it's good to have us each, you know, have our own opinions, have our own personalities, things like that. We don't want super conformity. But hyper-individualism that says I stand outside of everything in society has all these problems, which is what we like pointing out in the film, that you need to have some part of you that participates and joins up with the world. Um, I think there's two things to say about that that I've noticed. I'm interested in, you know, if uh, Tommy and your experience with Oddfellows and and Rebecca and, and how you saw it in the film. But my, my two cents on this are, um, one is, uh, I think there's a sense that our self exists, you know, we're born with this perfect self that our only job is to discover who our self is and anything outside of ourself can only threaten ourself unless it perfectly fits what we want. Um, and I think what people who join up with things discover is that that's not actually how the self works. What actually happens is you build yourself 
by what you join up with. By moving to Texas, you become a Texan. By joining up with the Oddfellows, you become an Oddfellow. By deciding to go into a line of work, that becomes part of who you are. By getting married, that forms who you are. You know, all the different parts of ways you can join up with something larger than yourselves. Those aren't threats to yourselves. Those are the materials out of which your relationships and your membership is the material out of which yourself is made. So that's one part. Um, I think we need to have that switch happen. The second part is when big organizations leave you outside of them, when they don't have opportunities for participation and co-creation of the organizations, um, uh, suddenly there's a sense of being alienated from all of the organizations. So I think a big part of why General Motors workers felt very connected with General Motors was because they were unionized, because they felt that they had power to partially shape you know, uh, what the direction of General Motors through their union. Or if you feel like your local city government has a lot of participation, you can get to know the mayor, you can fight city hall, you can, you you know, it, it feels accessible to you. You feel less alienated from your city. And if groups like the Oddfellows are out there in the community and you feel like there's a pathway for you to join and then you can see when you join, it's, it's not like, you know, you partially co-make the odd fellows and what your lodge becomes, what you put into it is what it becomes. Then suddenly you're you're less alienated from it. So I think those are the two things. I think we need to start seeing that we build ourselves through our memberships and our relationships and our communities. And second, our communities have to open themselves up to us so that we feel like we have power in them and we feel like we're a part of them because that's what's going to make us not feel conspiratorial or alienated from them and think they're all bad. And anytime you get inside of one of these orgs, you stop kind of feeling alienated. You say, oh, you know, well, I actually know the leader of it and you shouldn't be so weirded out by it because, you know, actually, why don't you go come and see our, you know, orientation meeting? Um, suddenly it starts being, um, feels like it's part of you and not uh, something outside of you. Anything others might add on that? Those are just my two cents. Well, I feel like definitely like, part of society's mistrust is um, of anything that is an organized body of anything. Just blame is... Dan Brown. That's the easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or it's instantly they're suspicious. They're like, it's a cult or there's something, you know, something's going on in there. What, what, why is it gotta be secret? Why is there gotta be a password? Why is there gotta be this and that and symbols and, initiations and why you got to do this and and it's like you try to explain it's it's like the, the secrets that there's no secret and it's fun and it's it's self it's self-reflection and the ritual is because it's comforting and everybody works together in harmony and it's like this beautiful pageantry it's not this nefarious occult thing that is going on there's nothing bad happening we're not slaughtering goats to <laughs> the demon overlords or anything like that unless it's maybe like the fifth meeting of the month but yeah. <laughs> that's but our goat slaughtering meeting but yeah. you know aside from that <laughs> but, but it's very hard to explain what we get out of it because it sounds like we've been brainwashed and we sound a little crazy because we're happy to talk about something that seems so counter and so unnatural to the, you know, the lone wolf 
kind of identity of people today that everybody is so self-sufficient and self-actualized and I don't need to be part of another brick in the wall or whatever kind of um, negative stereotype you want to put on any sort of group members that we can't think for ourselves that there's group think group speak all of the all of the bad things 1984 type sort of things that happen when there are you know bad bad large groups of people you know when people think in like government senses of you know fascism or you know soviet russia things like that it's it's like that's they go totally to those extremes and without thinking that like no actually these non-government agencies serve a very important role of training every member to know how to engage better with government agencies and things like that that make it a lot less scary and it disambiguates the processes of how things work in the world to make it a lot more clear that you know the, the world isn't quite as scary or foreign feeling i totally went off in the weeds <laughs> Uh, you went off into the weeds, but you found some really great wildflowers along the way. I always do. <laughs> here's here's what I mean by that. Um, people are so out of touch with the notion of fraternalism. It used to be, if you go back, and we talk to our older members here, um, almost all of the older members that I know in my area belong to not just the odd fellows, but they belong to something else. Masons is a really popular one for people to belong to. The Grange, uh, which the more rural lodges, you had a lot of people who were Grange members. And they would belong to any number of service clubs like Lions or Kiwanis, Rotary, anything like that. And each one of those groups grew out of a particular social need that came about. So let's take our friends in the Knights of Pythias, for example. Um, after the Civil War, the country was laying there kind of mostly ruined. And these people back in Washington, D.C., who are all government bureaucrats, said, we need a way of bringing the country together with some sort of kind of like quasi-mythology that reinforces the idea that we're all connected and we should help each other out. And they looked at antiquity and said, ah, the story of Damon and Pythias. And that became the Knights of Pythias, uh, which is one of those fraternal orders that has shrank even more than Odd Fellowship has. So we always look at them and go, gosh, it could be worse. We could be the Knights of Pythias. And then you look at something like the Grange. Again, post-Civil War, Oliver Hudson Kelly is going around, and he was from Minnesota, and he's traveling down in the South. And in 1868, Southerners were not too excited to see some Yankee carpetbagger show up and ask him how they grow corn. And so he said, the only way I can make any inroads in these communities as I try and help them out is through my connections in Freemasonry. So Oliver Hudson Kelly came up with this idea, let's create a fraternal group for farmers. And that became the Grange. And of course, uh, our origin story is that Thomas Wildey showed up and he was lonely. He's like, where are all my homies at? You know, what can I do? I know no one in Baltimore 
And he just kept putting an ad in the paper saying, are there four other odd fellows here? Please come join me. We'll start a lodge, please. And he found them. He did. He found the four other odd fellows. And then very quickly it spread around the country because odd fellowship had that thing that people needed at that time, that mix of personal fellowship and building community at the same time. And that's what I think is so engaging and powerful about Odd Fellowship. We have the ability to harness that combination of people who like getting together to do things and doing good things in our community, uh, which strengthen those communities for ourselves. And that's, that is the thing that people are so afraid of nowadays. They're like, you know, why do I have to join this group to go do good things? Oh, you don't have to. You can collect food for a food bank on your own. But when you do it as a group, you get the benefit of companionship and camaraderie, and you can have a greater impact as part of a group than you can as an individual. Another thing that was touched on in the documentary that I thought was really worth mentioning was how... Um, the um, populations of the, the freed slaves were able to use groups um, to be able to um, organize and to be able to create their own infrastructure when there was none, and then to grow communities from, from that and then to become quite successful in their respective trades and areas that previously were completely inaccessible because it was controlled completely by, you know, the white business class that had held everything. And so I, I, there was a lot of, you know, really interesting um, information there as well that shows how a community that might not have resources can pool what little they do have. And this could be any community. It could be, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, you know, we're having hurricanes right now. And of course, everybody's going to pitch in and help. But there is going to be one little town that's going to be the forgotten little town that doesn't make the news because there's only 56 residents. And they're going to have to band together to, you know, get the pickup truck to go to the other town that does have the Red Cross in it and to be able to work together um, in, in a time of need and how it's really just human nature to actually work together as a unit and in times of strife, instead of um, like that initial, the initial moment of when there is a panic, you know, we, we go, we go a little crazy and selfish and hoard the toilet paper. But then after, after the dust is settled, that's when the people actually come together. And that's where the beautiful kind of moments happen of, um, communities working together, whereas previously they might have been completely separated and detached from each other, but necessity creates it. And I feel like that's kind of what's happened with a lot of us that are joining these groups is we've been disconnected from the world and we're kind of coalescing in these sort of little niche communities of be it odd fellows or be it even like a Dungeons and Dragons group of you know how many thousands tens of thousands of D, &D groups meet uh, across the planet or you know magic the gathering or larping or any sort of fandom i feel like that also kind of piggybacks off of it as well that we do have these different sorts of of things now but 
a lot of them aren't as organized as joining a, a more formalized group. So that does allow for more things to get done. So while it's great to be in a D&D group, it's hard to do things outside of that group with much power because you're not affiliated with the other D&D groups other than through that fandom. But if there was a way that you were tied to those groups officially, that's that's a large system. And that's where you really start to build the bigger network at large to make bigger things happen, like having old folks' homes and orphanages and larger scholarship programs. Absolutely. I think when I was at um, at the lodge, I think, Tommy, there is a, a photo of an, an orphanage, right, from the turn of the yeah. century. Yeah. Fellow, you know, and I think I'll just, you know, quickly respond to that. You know, the initial question is, mm. you know, we wanted to show groups. We want people to join a club and we wanted mm. to you know, have this kind of uh, a somewhat simple takeaway. But we also wanted people to know that with that comes power. Um, groups are where our power comes from. So when we want to build that that orphanage, it's going to happen a lot faster and a lot easier if we've got 100 brothers or sisters ready to mobilize. Um, I, and I think there were several examples of that, right, Tommy, kind of in in the history in those photos of, of very ambitious projects that the Oddfellows in Texas. Yeah, for sure. Um, our building wasn't originally built as an Oddfellow building, but during that period of time, the 1890s, early 1890s, all kinds of beautiful buildings went up in our town. Our courthouse, our lodge was one of the most beautiful buildings in town, and time kind of got to it and maybe a little bit of neglect. And we had to brick over some of the sandstone that was originally there, but there were beautiful projects. And, you know, that was a, that was a good time then. You know, there was a lot of stuff going on in the county that I'm in. Um, it was a farming community and there were a lot of resources here. Uh, we were considered, uh, at, at one time, there was more cotton grown in Ellis County than anywhere in the world. And it was the queen of the cotton belt is what it was called. And there was a ton of resources here at that time. But there were, uh, I, I, look, I look back in my life, I'm, I'm 61 years old. And when I was a kid, every older man that I knew belonged to Oddfellows Lodge. He was a Mason. He belonged to the Rotary Club. He went to a meeting every night. The guys probably never saw their wife and kids because they were at <laughs> meetings all the time. But, uh, but everybody belonged to a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I, I, one thing I took away from the film, I, I was thinking about this earlier. I wanted to comment before I forgot it. When times are good, we don't get together. These uh, things start to go away. And then when times get bad, they, they get back together and start to grow. And we're still growing. Our, our lodge has grown. I don't think we've had a stagnant year since I've been there. We've grown to some degree every year. And some years we initiate 10, some some 18. And you know, you go through the numbers and they don't all stick, but we have we've had a good organic growth. And it seems like the times are the toughest is when the growth gets the best. And that's something that I, I'm really disappointed that I didn't come to Austin when y'all did the 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 premiere down there because I wanted to meet Robert Putnam so bad and, uh, and didn't get the chance to. And I was, I'm kind of jealous that Harley and them went and I didn't go. But we'll, we'll try to get him down to Waxahachie. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. But um, 
that was one of the, one of the things that that he pointed out was this this is all a cyclical thing, and so you know I know that when when lodges start to go away they don't wither up and die on the vine. It's just a matter of time before times are going to get bad enough to where people are going to start getting together and pulling their resources and pulling their their knowledge and and whatever they have to bring to the table and. You know, I think we're in a great time right now for, for that to occur because times are tough out here in the world. And, you know, of course, since since COVID isolated us even more than a lot of us were already putting on ourselves, it's it's a it's a good time for organizations like the Odd Fellas to, to really go out there and do some do some good things in the world. And and you know, we're our our main thing I said earlier that we like to have fun and we do. But if we don't have a goal and at the end of our fun, we're just, we're not really, we're kind of spinning our wheels. So we're a pretty goal oriented lodge. Uh, and I think that by us sharing the same goals and coming up with good ideas to do good things for people who need it, uh, people who need help, that's the key to what we're about. We, we've got a bunch of people there with servants hearts. And you know, Horace Bratcher, who is our eldest member, he said it best, he said, Living and uh, loving and serving is what it's all about, and we've managed to attract people at our lodge that are that that do love and do like love to serve, and we've got a lot of servants in our lodge, and it's a beautiful thing. And I think that uh, when times get tough, that's when the servants, the cream, kind of rises to the top. Then, absolutely, I think this is an excellent opportunity for us to take a break. And listen to a message from the Heart in Hand Institute. And then we're going to do some more talking here with Brother Tom and with Pete and Rebecca Davis. So stick around because uh, we got plenty more to talk about. Hello, brothers and sisters. I'm Toby Hansen one of the hosts of the Three Links Oddcast. I'm here to share some exciting news with all of you. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in Odd Fellowship, and not just at the surface level. You want to learn more about this wonderful order. Well, it's for listeners like you that I'm happy to share the news that there is now a trusted source for some of the finest books on Odd Fellowship, the Heart in Hand Institute. What is the Heart in Hand Institute? It's a new publishing venture aimed at producing the finest quality, most informative books on Odd Fellowship today. During the first century of the Independent Order of Odd Fellows, there was a plethora of great literature written by, for, and about Odd Fellows. Notable names like Ross, Grosch, and Ford produced some of the most treasured volumes for Odd Fellows. The Heart and Hand Institute is creating works that will continue the superb legacy of that treasury of great Oddfellows literature. Their first book, The Oddfellows Primer, has become a bestseller among Oddfellow literature and has become the new trusted source for learning about Oddfellowship for members both new and old. Their newest book, The District Deputy Grand Master's Guide, released in July 2023, is a compact and concise guide to doing the job of a District Deputy Grand Master. Even better, group orders of the District Deputy Grand Master's Guide can be customized with the program of the Grand Master of your jurisdiction. 
It's an excellent instructional guide for district deputy grandmasters, whether brand new to the job or with years of experience. Be sure and check out the fine books on Odd Fellowship at heartinhandinstitute.com. Remember, better Odd Fellowship begins with you. And we are back for the second half of the Three Links Oddcast. And we are here with a new Lodge alert. Woo! These are always fun. Yeah. So for our Lodge shout out this episode, uh, I want to give the shout out to New Northwest 2554 of the Grand United Order of Oddfellows of Portland, Oregon. Woohoo! All right. Oh. Congratulations, Grand United Order. So I think that is, is that the current only active West Coast lodge of the Grand United Order? I'm not entirely sure. I believe it is, uh, but I don't, I don't know for sure. I know this is one that uh, Brother David Shear down in Portland has worked very hard to bring about. Uh, and so congratulations are definitely in order I hate to admit this, but uh, Oregon is uh, maybe kind of slightly more active in Odd Fellowship than my home jurisdiction of Washington. But I know Johnny O is going to get that new lodge going in Clarkston one of these days. And so then we'll be catching up to Oregon. That's great news for anybody in the Pacific Northwest who's interesting in, interested in becoming a double odd. That's right. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll get the chance to go down and join yeah. them. So for the second half, uh, we're talking to Brother Tom Wright from Waxahachie Number 80 down in Texas, one of our superstar lodges. And we've also got Pete and Rebecca Davis here, a brother-sister team who made this incredible film called Join or Die. That sounds so dramatic. Uh, to start with, how is it that you picked the title Join or Die? That certainly is very attention-grabbing. You know, we wanted it to, one, show the stakes of what we're trying to say. And the big message of the film is that joining is key to our personal lives and it's key to America's civic life. And that the stakes are high, you know, when you, on a personal, just simple health level, um, and we mentioned this in the film, um, joining one group is as good for your health as quitting smoking. So, um, you know, uh, this is a isolation and lack of joining is a serious health risk, you know, join or die is literal. Um, and then on a America level, you know, to solve the big public problems that we face as a country um, and to kind of overcome these challenges that we're facing right now, um, it's gonna require some joining or we're gonna be in, we're gonna continue to be in trouble as a country. The second reason was, you know, join or die is a great American phrase. It was invented by Ben Franklin as a revolutionary war cry um, and, or uh, appropriated by Ben Franklin as a revolutionary war cry. It started a, few, a decade earlier for the history buffs out there. Um, but uh, and so we thought, you know, that part of our American heritage we should uh, revive. But instead of just being a call for all the colonies to come together to fight the British, 
it should be about literally joining um, joining up with clubs in your hometown. That might be the equivalent of our American Revolution. I think you bring up an interesting topic there. This movie really starts talking about what was going on Italy all those decades ago and how that shaped democracy there. And I know that uh, he went back and you have footage of him going back. Is this an American problem, the lack of people joining clubs, or is it an international problem? Well, you know, uh, so what you're referencing for those who haven't seen the film is that, you know, Bob decided to care about community in the first place before he was writing about the decline of community. He did a 20-year study in Italy just to show, uh, he didn't know this at the beginning, but by the end, he was showing the real importance of community democracy. He did tests in different regions across Italy. He organized them from the most functional governments and societies to the least functional governments and societies. And then he asked the question, well, what makes the difference? And he found that it was, you know, bocce clubs and choral societies um, and their equivalent of their club life over in Italy that was the supreme uh, factor in uh, in leading to a government functioning, a democracy functioning, society flourishing. So that's why I was interested in Italy. Um, and, you know, in terms of his bowling alone finding that there was this decline of community in America, there has been civic declines in other countries as well. Um, it's not totally across the board, but, you know, there is some things that we all share in kind of our globalizing world and in the spread of technology, especially the spread of television, which Bob had identified as one of the major factors in the decline of community and the kind of development of television into our iPhones. Um, you know, those are happening in every country and there are others that are caring about isolation crises there. The one thing I'm more confident in knowing is that a lot of countries are turning on to the community or social capital lens. Um, and there are people reading Bob's work in every country and every international uh, institution. And he travels the world and is invited by all these world leaders um, to deal with, uh, to you know, answer their question about social capital. So for example, and this shows the decline in another country, uh, England is actually like leading the way in setting up a government office that's just about monitoring the rise of isolation and loneliness. Um, so they're facing a similar problem to us too. So uh, we're not alone, but I, I do wanna say there are some countries that do better than others and that shows the hope that tinkering with the design of how we do things can help you know, result in things going a little better. So Northern Italy, for example, still remains a very communal place um, as Bob founded in the 70s because of some of the ways that they organize their housing or organize their club life or organize their government. Um, and we have a lot of lessons to learn from the high community places all across the world. Now, here's a question for you. Um, you've had a certain amount of time to interact with the odd fellows and see what we do and see how we do it. Um, what are your impressions of the organization from the outside? Because we're all on the inside looking out the window going, do we need to paint the siding? Is that the issue? Let's take it to the building committee and see what they think. Okay, but you're on the outside looking in. So what is your perspective on this organization and things that you see that are effective or functional or that aren't effective or aren't functional? Yeah, I mean, 
mean, I, I would say we grew up in a town where there was still an Odd Fellows Hall and, you know, as, as children and there was still a Masonic Lodge. Um, and, you know, so I, I think there was also a personal thing that that drew us um, probably to wanting to to reach out to Tommy and the guys there to get to get a peek on the inside, which is, I think, always the um, the gift of, uh, getting to do this work as a documentarian is you reach out to people and you say, will you open up at least a part of your world to us? Um, and I also recognize that there was a sensitivity there. So I think Tommy, when you and I were initially talking, I, I knew there was some stuff you still couldn't show us, but there was some stuff you could. And I, I think the hope was that we could show just enough, you know, to me, as I was coming in with my camera crew and to the audience to pique their interest, to want to know more. Um, and I think, you know, I wanted to show there, there is the aspects that's the funny, you know, you know, uh, you all wear the collars, right? Is that what you call yeah. it? And, our, and there was also, you know, we'd have the Shriners in the parade with the feds, different groups have their, um, kind of different elements. We wanted to show that, that there was that element, the symbolism, and that it really meant something to the membership, but that there was a deeper level beyond that, um, that I hope we are able to get across with some of the service work that we showed and some of the interviews we were able to do with some of the the brothers at the lodge to show the the meaningfulness of the group of being a part of this group and in the lives of everyone we we spoke to we were only with you for a day and a half right tommy i think but yeah. you didn't need a lot of time it came through just immediately as we started <laughs> chatting with everyone um you know just how meaningful it was and i think that's true across um people we spoke with who were members people who are members of things they immediately are ready to tell you just how important that thing is to their life. And I tend to find that that there's really been this fallout in the middle. I meet someone, you know, like Tom, you mentioned earlier, you're also in a bowling league. I tend to meet people that they're in one thing and then they also are telling me about five other clubs they're in because they they feel that magic once they join one thing. And then it doesn't feel like, ugh, I have to go to another meeting. It feels like this one thing is giving so much. I'd be glad to join these other things because it's given so much. Or I meet people on the other end of the spectrum, the I'm not so much of a joiner end of the spectrum. And I think our hope with the, the film is we can get a little bit more people in the middle so we don't just have the hyper joiners and the people on the sidelines, but more of that robust uh, kind of middle. I think I said in the in in the film the, there the day that I wasn't a joiner, and I got to thinking about this since then. I probably joined more things than I maybe re remember. You know that it just I didn't consider myself a joiner, but I look back and you know I was involved in a few things coming up, but I was real selective about what I did join. But I wasn't just uh, I wasn't a loner. I've always been kind of a quiet guy, but I wasn't necessarily a loner, but I've joined more things than I really think I have. And it, like you say, it makes it a little easier. If you join one, it makes it easier to go find something else to go dip your toe in and see if you want to, you know, jump in or not. You know, one thing, just one aspect that really touched my heart um, and was very inspiring. And I just saw the footage. I, you know, uh, my sister and and the crew kind of went and, and saw it in person was, you know, I think when we talk about like, you should join a club and there should be civic life, you know, there are some clubs that are just, you know, a book club and you read the book and you talk about the book or bowling league, you, you want to go bowl. 
Um, but I think there's also a hunger for a connection to the deeper transcendent questions. It's not just that you want to have a relationship to each other you or just a relationship to an interest or an activity. You also want to be connected to something in history or something that's connected to the meaning of life or something that gets, you know, without going fully religious, gets close to connecting you to kind of God or the universe or, you know, whatever way you want to put it. Um, and it's really amazing that, you know, people are saying when they join Oddfellows, they're, they're saying the food's good. They're saying the friends are good. They're saying it's fun. They're even saying, you know, it's good to help people. But they're also saying it's given me a different way of seeing my life or it's changed the way I relate to all of existence. <laughs> you know, like I get up in the morning in a different way because I'm an odd fellow. And I think we're in a time right now where there's a real hunger for that. And the odd fellows is one of the few groups in America left that has really pulled off uh given you some deep sense of meaning in a time when we're really hungry for it you know that's really one of the reasons why i personally feel Oddfellows gives the best fraternal experience that there is um because we we are more open to different people than some fraternal groups because you know it's like i belong to sons of norway and um Sons of Norway is primarily for people who are either of Norwegian ancestry or have an interest in Norwegian culture. Okay, so that's fine. But if you're Irish and interested in Irish culture, you're not going to find anything of interest in Sons of Norway. Um, that's what the Hibernian Society is for. But when, when you look at something like God Fellowship, we are meant to be intentionally broad-minded. Uh, the idea is you get the people around you uh, who are willing to help each other out, and that's what brings you in. That's what pulls you all together. Uh, it's not uh, about having some other commonality that you bring into it, like Sons of Italy or the German-American Society that I'm going to be performing for in a couple of weeks for their Oktoberfest. Um, you don't come in with that commonality. You find it once you join and you go, oh, yeah, uh, these degrees that I've taken, these important philosophical lessons that I've learned have deepened my understanding of the world around me and the commitments that I am making to my fellow brothers and sisters in the order. And I... I think that aspect of it is one of the things that makes Odd Fellowship so appealing. I look forward to a day when our international organization at the Sovereign Grand Lodge will be in a position to be able to start promoting that idea because there's so many people out there, you know, all of the, what my friend calls the digital ditch diggers who spend eight hours a day with their laptop sitting in their home office and then they go into their kitchen and make dinner and they're like i have done nothing with my day i didn't even put on deodorant because i didn't go anywhere i don't have anything to do uh, the only entity i talk to all day is my cat and those are the people for whom odd fellowship is going to be very appealing and those are the people we need to reach out to the most but in some ways those are also the people who are the most resistant to join 
because the paradigm of fraternalism is so incredibly foreign to them because it was their grandparents or great grandparents who were the last generation to say, you know what, we all need to get together and help each other out. Let's go down to the Grange Hall and we'll have a community supper on Tuesday night. Everybody bring what's in your pantry and we will cook it up together. That kind of communal uh, activity is so foreign to so many people now because, I mean, we, we have to have meetup groups for people who want to go watch a movie together because they don't have enough friends to call to say, hey, let's all go out to a movie Friday night. That's probably something that when the book was originally written seemed like a charming, you know, when I was watching the, um, uh, when uh, Hillary Clinton was talking about how when they had him over to the White House and they were like, let's do it in the bowling alley and how it was almost like this charming notion of, oh, we don't join clubs anymore. And now it's like, oh, we don't join clubs anymore. And it's it, it's taken such a darker tone. And was there any way uh, that there was no way you guys could have predicted that when you started this five years ago, that the pandemic was going to happen and the ratcheting effect of it. But <laughs> has that has that impacted anything with you guys or uh, like, yeah, yeah, I guess, the, you know, the, how does that how does that work out for you? <laughs> Totally. I mean, it made it an, an unusually like that much more timely and in, in an yeah. odd way. I think it would become timely to be doing, you know, just a film about community, which is a very broad topic. But it made it so that, you know, it was the front of a lot of people's minds. But, you know, one thing jumping off of what you said, Toby, about, you know, the person who's working in front of their computer for eight hours a day. I think we're at a really exciting moment Um for as as the pandemic forced this massive shift in the way everyone is working, you know, for a lot of people, their last, you know, face to face interaction for them was going to an office and seeing people and interacting with them there. You know, and so for a lot of people who've now moved to remote work, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, I think it's going to be that much more important to be ready to welcome those people who have been now working from home all day and didn't even have those little, you know, um, water cooler conversations to kind of, you know, fill them up. Um, but the other thing people are getting back is a lot of people used to commute really far to go to work. Um, you know, so maybe they were driving an hour in the morning and an hour in the night. That's two hours back. Um, that are now up for grabs, you know, that mm -hmm. our clubs can say, hey, use those two hours and come spend them with us. You used to spend them in your car. You know, you're not commuting anywhere anymore. Um, you know, but the competition is is with, uh, you know, someone sitting on their couch and, you know, watching TV that night. So um, I think there's there's a challenge there also for for all of our organizations to find ways um, to help people use this, this new muscle, um, you know, and, and it is a muscle joining clubs and going to a meeting, you know, it's like going to the gym and for people that haven't done that, especially this new generation, as we show in, in the data, um, you know, they're going to need leadership from, from people, um, to show them, you know, how to start working out those community muscles again. Well, I think that's a good point there. We've talked a little bit our, among ourselves about, you know, doing screenings of this film at lodges. And I'm not going to say that's not a good idea, but at the same time, 
it's sort of like going to a Chick-fil-A and talking about how great chicken is. But the people that are there already know it's it's harder to get the message out to the people who we really need to reach. And do you have any ideas on on how we would better promote showing this film if we did a screening that ways that might attract people that have already not decided to come visit an Oddfellow Lodge on their own and that might be hesitant to say, well, what are they doing with this film? Do you have any ideas on on promotion? You know, we've always um, thought about having two audiences to our film. Um, one audience is people who aren't joining as a nudge to get them to join. Um, and, uh, you know, they they sit and see this, you know, they we just had a showing where uh, two of the audience members thought they were going to see Barbie. And I had to tell them, oh, you know, we bought out the, or we we booked the theater and it's actually going to be our documentary on community life in America. And I said, oh, I'll go anyway. And then, you know, they come to the, they come to the film and have, get a, get a lesson on civic life and joining. So it's, you know, people who, um, people who aren't joiners yet, um, who were brought by someone who's into joining. Um, the other though, and that's important. That's one of our big messages is to get people to be joiners. The other though is we actually want people who are joiners to see this film too, because we want them to come to a consciousness that what they're doing is really important. And I know so many joiners out there already feel that it's really important, but we want we want this to be a pep rally for people who are joiners to say, you know, if you're tired next Thursday and you feel like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing the same annual banquet? Why am I doing the recruiting? Why am, Why do I put in the time? You know, I'm feeling a little tired in, in the work um, this time around. We want it to be a nudge that says, you know, we see you um, and we have data to back up that what you're doing is actually shoring up the foundation of our democracy. And we really mean it when we say you're saving America when you're uh, going to club, you know, ordinary club meetings in neighborhoods all across the country. So, um, and that kind of gets into, I think, how people, how we increase the amount of joining is, you know, in marketing, the single best thing uh, that marketers all agree is someone using your product, telling their friends that the product changed their life. That is why like social media has been such an interesting boon to marketing because literally like if your friend says, I use the Swiffer WebJet and it got my floor perfectly clean, take a look at my floor. You're like, oh, I guess I'll buy the Swiffer WebJet. That's better than the most famous celebrity in the world telling you to do the Swiffer WebJet. And I think, um, and I always tell people when they're forming groups, if you got five people in your group, don't go lament that you have five people and just try to recruit all the time and put 95% of your stuff in recruiting. Love those five people so hard and work on making your group even a bigger deal in those five people's lives because they're going to tell all their friends, wow, um, or they're going to just be smiling the next day after some uh, great meeting and their friends at work are going to say, well, what are you, what's got you so happy? Oh, well, yesterday I went to the lodge and it was so great. And that's the single best advertisement for something. Um, so, you know, we part of it is we want this movie to get people to double down on their life as joiners. And then you know, naturally that'll do the work of evangelizing it um, because, and tell people and reveal to more people in your life about why this is a big part of your life. That's that's really great. And I was thinking, not to get into politics, we don't want to do politics much, but the things you're talking about, we see every four years, you know, that whole New Hampshire, Iowa 
thing where it's about getting to every little civic group and going and meeting with them and talking with them because they really do drive. So I, I, I think we haven't entirely forgot um, about the importance of community engagement, but maybe in the bigger areas where people are more spread out, we've we've become a little more disconnected. I think we've run into a problem when I know we are we're a non-political, non-sectarian organization, but I think we run into a problem when we don't talk about politics. That's when uh, we just got to maybe lay down some ground rules. We don't do it in our lodge meetings, obviously, but when we're just sitting around a bunch of guys, that's the time to talk about it and and to say, well, you know, I don't like to get involved in politics. Well, the way the political climate is in the world, you kind of ought to get involved, you know, and we can't, as odd fellas, we can't subscribe to any one brand of politics, nor should we. But I think it's wrong for us not to be able to sit down and talk about it in a in a rational way, with uh, with people not getting their feelings hurt. It's the only way we're ever going to change change any. And you know, I was I was really struck by, you know, you talking about uh, Mike was talking about maybe showing the film with us is preaching to the choir, but I was more interested in the why than the what when I watched it. And that was my, I mean, I kind of had a good idea what it was going to be about. And I was kind of dead wrong about a lot of things. It had a lot more uh, analytics than I was expecting. And I kind of like that kind of stuff. I like to know the numbers and why, why th- you know, when things changed and by what percent and all that. I love that part of the deal. And there were a few people that, that watched it when we uh, screened it down here at the Texas Theater that um, they were like, it got a little too deep. It got a little in the weeds for me with the numbers. And I was like, oh, that was my favorite part. You know, I love that part of stuff. And but um, I think that we've got a we've got a good opportunity with this. If we can screen it and invite people, I would love to. I talked to Rebecca before about getting the theater one more time and opening it up for the for the whole community. And I would love to, you know, look into doing that again and try to make that happen. We have a little small theater here that was built back in the maybe the teens or the twenties been here a hundred years and it just got restored. And it's a, it's a great space and it's beautiful and they're booking bands in there every weekend. And that place is, is really rolling right along right now. And it's, it's bringing some life back to our downtown area. You know, normally this, we roll up the sidewalks at five o'clock and it's not that way anymore. You go down. I, I was just through there this evening before I came here. Uh, my girlfriend and I went and had some dessert and coffee and I came through town and I was like, man, there's a ton of cars down here tonight. There are people everywhere downtown. There was a show at the theater. Awesome. So I'd love, I would love to have Joyner die up on the marquee there again and, and make it available to everybody except just odd fellows because it was pretty much, um, shown at an odd fellow event before, uh, we did open it up early for all the brothers, uh, any odd fellows that we knew we invited them to come. And um, it was a great, a, a great time, and and it's going to be up to people like us who have seen it that want to do it again and show it to people that haven't. And a lot of good messages in that thing for a lot of people. And and I think it's uh, I want to do everything I can to help y'all. I've always I've always enjoyed uh, 
Rebecca, she's been wonderful to us, and we tried to be really good to her. And anything I can do to help y'all get this message out, you know I'm willing to do it. You and Pete both. Thank you. Well, and thank, thank you, you all so for much. having us on this this podcast to help amplify. Um, and I guess I should say, jumping off that, the only way to see this film right now is together <laughs> for yes. the time being. We are trying to get it on a streaming service by uh, by next year, but but we're actually kind of happy right now that the only way people can do it is by booking a community screening. Um, so it is not available to stream at home. You have to get out. You have to go downtown if you're lucky enough to be somewhere like Tommy, where there's a revived kind of community theater that's having events. So then you got to stream out into the streets and talk about it after with all your neighbors. Um, so, so we are um, open for booking community screenings. It could be at your Odd Fellows Lodge Hall. It can be at um, religious congregation spaces, at churches, at local libraries, at some groups have done outdoor screenings, at parks that have screens. Um, no group is too small. Um, and if you'd like to book a screening, you can head over to host.joinordie.film. Um, and we have a form there you can fill out to request. You know, it's really interesting that uh, both you and brother Tom brought up the notion of theaters, because one thing that I have personally witnessed during my performing career, which began late in the previous millennium, I say that to make myself sound old, but it's true. Entertainment used to be the kind of thing that happened only in groups. I mean, if you were super wealthy, you could have Beethoven come and play your piano in your castle. But basically, entertainment was the kind of thing that happened in groups. Uh, it used to be live entertainment. You would go to the theater and audience members understood how to behave in a theater. That has eroded over the last 25 years that I have been performing. Um, I now see young people going to performances they have no awareness of how much space they're taking up around them. The idea of staying in your seat and being quiet so that other people can also enjoy the performance is going away because these are people for whom entertainment is now something that happens primarily individually. And you will have the phenomenon of a group of young people together with their phones or tablets all watching something together, but watching it individually on their screens and not knowing how to be a, an audience member in a group. And to me, that's fascinating, maddening, and frightening all at the same time. Because those, those sort of old traditions of this is how we behave for group entertainment, they're gone now, and they're only remembered by people in their 40s and older at best. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'll, I'll go out and I'll go out on a limb and say, I think it is less of a quality experience to experience entertainment alone than to experience it together. You know, when you're doing, when you're pulling up something on YouTube, you might be pulling up the exact specific band of exactly what, you know, floats your boat. Um, and you know you can see the exact concert at the exact time. That's the perfect song, exactly what you want. But none of that beats the sublimity that people felt, you know, in a punk house show. You know, I'll, I'll use my my local DC uh, example. You know, the sublimity that people feel in like a, a con you know in a concert live. 
you know, in a scene, you know, in a music scene in a city where you go to the local venue that has the storied history and you meet with other people that you've seen at other shows and kind of experience that live moment. Um, that's, you know, we're missing out on something without that. And, you know, we use club as a shtick in the movie. You know, this is a film about why you should join a club. But really the message of Bowling Alone and the message of the movie is any of the different ways you get together. And, you know, bars are a big part of that. Cafes are a big part of that. And concert venues and, like, creative scenes are a big part of that, too. And those are, like, so many of the ways that, you know, people have gotten together in history and, like, made the best memories of their lives uh, that, you know, no one's going to remember the TikTok video that they saw, even if it was the funniest thing ever. But everyone will remember yeah. that, you know, night in 19, you know, February 3rd, 1998, when they, you know, that band played, came to town or something, you know, and that's what I want to kind of, I don't want to be the old man yells at cloud, but, yeah. you know, I want to tell young people, you know, you're missing out <laughs> I and mean, you can still make this happen. It's not the past. It's not just in the past. You can still come together and be part of some beautiful thing. One question I have for, for Pete and Rebecca, what have you joined? Ooh, oh, good question. So I actually, in the course of making this film, I'm a member of a um, vibrant video community called the Video Consortium. Um, it started in New York about 10 years ago and similar to Odd Fellowship when it started in Baltimore or the Rotary Club that we highlight in film where Paul Harris, who started that group, got together with five friends. Uh, this video group was me and maybe 10 other video producers in New York City. We met at a bar um, and that group now has chapters in Mexico City, in uh, chapters in Italy, you know, East Coast, West Coast um, and the camera person um, and some of the crew that we brought out to film in Texas because I was not based in Texas. I, I found through this group um, and the group is you know, it's both online and in person. And I think that was another thing we try to highlight in the film. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, this group meets up once a month for um, we screen works in progress and give each other feedback and um, camaraderie uh, with other video producers that are doing this work. Um, and then we also have a vibrant online community. So when we need to find someone, you know, in another city, other crew, um, we can go on online to the video consortium's website. So um that professional organization has been a really big part of my life. Nice. And you, Pete? Yeah, you know, I have a similar story, which is, you know, the side that I kind of, the world I came from that led me to this film was I'm really into political science and sociology and the types of stuff Bob Putnam works on. Um, and I have found a very nerdy club of, a uh, book club of people who are also into that stuff in my area. Um, and we get together once a month and kind of talk about the future of democracy. And so um, that's one thing. And then I'm trying to get more, you know, I just moved back to my hometown of Falls Church, which has a little bit of a mention in the film um, right outside of D.C. and Virginia, and uh, just joined a housing advocacy group here. So around um, kind of fighting for more affordable housing in our area, which rents are like skyrocketing. So um, been part of that. But, you know, I'm under... I'm under registered on like fun clubs and I want to start, I want to, that's my next thing after the film calms down a bit. I want to just join something that's, that's just full on just an activity. Well, I'll say that there are odd fellow lodges near you. That's true. I would love, I was actually, as we were starting the convo, I was like, you know what? I should start, I'm going to start Googling. And, and we used to have one in false church. 
Um, and I, I looked up if there's Northern Virginia Oddfellows. So, and I know the the first Virginia Oddfellows Lodge is a historic site in Virginia. So um, there's like an appreciation of the history here. And so I want to see if there's still a live one. Well, I, I believe if I remember correctly, um, and both Ainsley and Mike would probably know this better than me. The first lodge in Virginia was actually in Harper's Ferry. Yes, that is yep. correct. Which which uh, then you know defected and left for New Virginia. So <laughs> I, I don't know what's left around Falls Church because I'm a West Coast guy. Yeah, but Virginia Lodge Number One in Harper's Ferry would love to have you make the trip out there. Yeah, I bet they would. One of my favorite places to visit. And I remember as we were making the movie, I visited Harper's Ferry to kind of see all the other John Brown stuff. And, you know, one of the funny parts about making a movie about civic life is you notice all the plaques now. Yeah. And all my friends, Mm -hmm. I'm sure this is the same with my sister too, um, (laughs) with her friends. We're always like, oh my gosh, that's a, a Rotary Club historic site. Or, you know, that was the first Grange building of this county or something. Everyone's like tired of us talking about the civic history of everywhere. Yeah, it's like everybody who joins the Odd Fellows, like after about the first three months, they're driving through town, looking up at all the buildings to see if they find an old IOOF on a pediment somewhere. Because they're like, oh, that used to be an Odd Fellows Hall. And people are like, what? That used to be a What? What are you talking about? What says IOF at the top? That used to be an Odd Fellows Hall. And, you know, like a lot of people, they do not recognize the the signs and symbols and stuff like that, which was intentional at the time because we didn't want everybody showing up trying to claim benefits. But uh, it was the kind of thing that if you were a member, you knew how to spot it. And so you would look for those signs you know, you'd look for things like the all-seeing eye. And now, like myself, when I travel, I'm always going through new towns going, where's the Oddfellows Hall? Where was it? Where's, you know, there's got to be something left that has, uh, you know, the three links on it up at the top. So it's definitely a part of joining the group that you you start to spot those symbols that are hidden various places. Toby, I've got a... Um... There's a fellow that's came. He's come and visited our lodge. He he's a member, I think, of the Grapevine Texas Lodge. But okay. He drives he drives down and visits us every once in a while, and he's a crane operator. Operates oh. these huge cranes, and he drives them from town to town all over the country. And I get random texts from him almost weekly, <laughs> where he, where he'll find a lodge in some some little town somewhere in Kingfisher, Oklahoma, or wherever he's driving through. And he'll take pictures of a lodge hall and send them to me. I've got tons of these pictures in my phone that he sends every week. And uh, we're we're fairly good friends. We're not, you know, that that close or anything. But And he's visited a few times. He talked about maybe transferring his membership down to our lodge. But he's on the road so much he can't attend. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, he keeps me... Uh, he keeps me supplied with these pictures of these old lodges. Some of them are great, great buildings. And, you know, they're sitting empty, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, does anybody have anything else they want to offer for this episode? I think this is a great one. I'm really excited that we were able to actually score you two to be willing to come on and talk to us on our little little itty bitty podcast about your movie. So I'm, I'm really excited that this actually <laughs> happened. 
one of the best requests, press requests we've gotten. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, seriously <laughs> after we got the request, we called each other and we're like, yes, we're in the <laughs> awesome. We're so happy. <laughs> well, I have to say on a personal note, um, being a resident here uh, in the greater Tacoma area, one of the highlights of the film was, of course, the classic footage from 1940 of the collapsing of the original Tacoma Narrows Bridge when you were talking mm. about uh, the decline of infrastructure. I was like, I know that. I drive over the new bridge all the time. I recognize that right away. So that was a little treat to see that in the film. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great when we can get um, people who are doing great work like yourselves uh, to come on and talk about it because that gives us the opportunity to spread the news about what you're doing. Uh, and Brother Tom, it's always great to have someone from Waxahachie on the show here. Uh, I know uh, Brother uh, Robert has been on before. Or no, but Roger. Brother Roger has been on before. Yeah, he and Savannah were on that time. Uh, that was a great show. That was one of our most downloaded episodes ever. So that was... Oh, nice. Yeah, we should just, like, once every couple months, just have more people from your lodge on because it seems to generate a lot of downloads. <laughs> well, we're certainly happy to help anytime. And, uh, Pete, it's wonderful meeting you. So nice to meet you. I've, I've, uh, I've watched so much footage of your wonderful lodge. It's so great. We can finally interact and hope we can well, meet in person, you, I, too. I would, I would love it. I hope you and Rebecca can both make your way down to Waxahachie sometime. I would love that. We're so grateful for your hospitality. Yeah, Odd, Odd Fest is coming up soon, right, Tommy? Hope yeah, it's a good. It's uh, about three weeks of three weeks away or so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to get Pete down for that. It looks like we're going to have our uh, biggest one yet. Nice. Awesome. We've got Amazing. a lot of people committed, a lot of vendors committed, a lot of great art. Uh, we're rounding up sponsors right now. It's going to be a great day. Sweet. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, it's time for the Odd Pods. This is where we share whatever we feel like sharing on this episode. And I'm going to start because I want an opportunity to explain why I sound croaky tonight. Uh, that is because I brought a very unique souvenir home from Sovereign Grand Lodge, <laughs> a case of COVID. So uh, one of the, the like lucky 50% that got the, the COVID tote bag. That's right. You know, everybody else got the this kind of uh, junky little bag that they give out with all the stuff like these are the restaurants in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I got the COVID take home kit. So I've spent the last week more or less recuperating. But that's why I don't have my usual mellifluous voice on this episode. So um, I have been recovering from my Sovereign Grand Lodge COVID case this week. All right. Who else has something they want to share for our odd podge? Well, I'll go ahead because it piggybacks on yours. You brought home COVID from session and uh, Charleston brought home having session come here in 2025. So that's big news for us uh, that we, where we have 100, 175 years this year of odd fellowship in Charleston, West Virginia in two years, we'll be, hosting Sovereign Grand Lodge here in this city. And I think it's going to be great for us and great for the order. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's right. Charleston, West Virginia, the Hague of Appalachia. That's right. 
I'll go next since we're doing a sovereign thread here. Um, so mine's more of just like a fun, funny little ditty of a story. Um, I was driving home. It's probably about six hours on the nose from where I live to uh, Des Moines. So I'm most of the way home and I probably, mm, I'd say probably about 45 minutes before I get home, but I'm probably about like, you know, 15 minutes before I take a highway interchange. So I'm like, okay, here's a rest area. I'm just going to pull off. So it's dead quiet. It's like nine 30 at night. It's just, you know, nobody around. So I'm in the bathroom. I take care of what I'm doing in the bathroom. And then I literally, I'm walking out of the bathroom and then right across from me, from the, from the women's room walks Fran Davis, who also is coming from sovereign grand lodge session and is an associate member of my lodge. So I had a nice little parking lot chat at nine 30 at night with Dan and Fran from my lodge uh, about their session experience. It was just such a random thing to be like, Oh, we just happened to be at the same rest area at the same time and almost literally walk into each other. It was just one of those like weird little silly odd fellow things that happened that I just it tickled me. It was just random. All right. Who wants to go next for the odd podge? I just want to say uh, thanks for the invitation for doing this tonight. Uh, I want to send greetings from myself and everyone at number 80. Uh, I know we have a lot of people that are loyal listeners. We're going to continue to do so, and uh, it's just it's great to great to be along for the ride tonight. Thank you so much. Texas is yeah. definitely one of our best download locations. Um, it's always way up in the top five as far as jurisdictions for download. So we love you, Texas. Keep listening. We will. All right. Anybody else? Rebecca, Pete, you have something you'd like to share? I think I'll just say that, you know, ever since uh, we filmed with the Odd Fellows and decided that we would use you all to bookend the movie, we see the symbols everywhere. <laughs> and um, and I think some, I think, Becky, am I remembering right that you were on a plane and you saw the heart in the hand and you said, you know, that's a sign we're doing something right with this movie. <laughs> Yes, um, we need a better conspiracy theory, though, because our symbols are all over the place, uh, but nobody's aware of it. We got to maybe, like, get Dan Brown on the phone or something. Write us a, a mystery novel or something where odd fellows are central to it, and it makes the group sound really interesting. Uh, that would be a huge thing for membership. Spice up our symbols a little bit. <laughs> oh, we, we don't even need to spice up the symbols. Just make people aware that they are ours. <laughs> well, awesome. that's it for the Three Links Oddcast. We have not scheduled our next episode yet. Normally, I would tease it at the end of one, but we don't know what it's going to be. So you will have to listen and find out. Of course, we'll put it out on all our social media, uh, and we will be blasting that out to all of our subscribers if you're not yet a subscriber to the Three Links Oddcast, go to the podcatcher of your choice. By the way, rest in peace, Stitcher. We miss you already. Uh, and you can subscribe to us. That way you get the new episodes as soon as they are released. So on behalf of everybody here at the Three Links Oddcast, we want to thank you all for listening. Bye-bye, everybody.